uh, on page five is the is the um, reading from Ruth one. I said, do you want me to read it all? Okay. Um, in the day when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites? Ephrathites, something like that. From Just say it real fast. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they had lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons and would wait until they grew up, would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone against me. And they wept again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me. Be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The woman exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. We uh, begin our study in the book of Ruth today. And... um, before we begin, I just want to say there's one um, way to describe the presence of God in the book of Ruth is God is subtle but powerful. Let you know that he, God, is not named as frequently as we would expect in a Bible book, but we can be comforted in books like Ruth and and other books like Esther that we may get to, but we can be sure of his power and presence in our everyday lives. 
everyday lives like us, like regular people like Naomi and Ruth, struggling in and, and, and through worldly circumstance, but cared for and loved by a God who, who holds us, and as we'll see them, in unknown and unseen details and kind of helps and, and urges us in the still quiet promises that God, He, though we may not see Him, or know that what he is doing, that he will not and does not leave his people without hope, without help, without himself. I think, unfortunately, our lives have become about being accepted, about being acceptable to those around us, to those groups that will make us feel more valuable than we would feel if we were alone. We kind of hold that this world is a dangerous place to be and, and we are all sort of scrambling for survival and security. And it is this kind of thinking, this, this thinking of being good enough or smart enough or strong enough and even moral enough that I believe has, has clouded and destroyed for most of us what it means to be the kind of people God loves. People accepted by God. Those who get the approval and care and check and the smiley face sticker from God. As I look out in this congregation, as I think about some of you, I see those who believe they are capable of being the kind of people God loves. If, if I just give you the right steps or the right resources, the, the right formula. But I also see those looking around at others and yourself and thinking, there's not a chance. I'm damaged goods. I'm an almost. I, I could have been somebody. I'm not even a contender. I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm a not quite. I'm a loser. But in Ruth, we find good news. For both the deserving feeling and undeserving feeling, for the sinner and the so-called saint, for the perfect and the mistaken, God loves broken people. God loves desperate people. God loves people who are called by him. As we look at this first chapter in Ruth, one word that comes to my mind is broke. Simply broke. Now we can Christianize it and say broken. Naomi and Ruth are broken by a fallen world. Now, all of what has happened to Naomi in this first chapter is a result of first having to move to a foreign land, to Moab, in the wake of an unforeseen famine, in the wake of some unforeseen circumstance, and then the death of her husband and two sons. Now, two sons who are according to the meanings of their name. Now, we're getting to the Old Testament now, and so you have to kind of look at the names because the names carry a feeling we need to get. They, they would, sometimes they would name their kids according to their first impression or issues surrounding the birth. So if you came out a little green, they might give you the Hebrew name for green. If you came out and the sun was half up, they'd give you the Hebrew name for sun half up. You know, and so May, Mahlon, and Chilion, their sons, their na- names meant sickness and consumption. Now, only in a fallen world with tainted and twisted circumstance would a father whose name means God is my king and mother who names, who, who na- whose name means pleasant and lovely w- would give birth to boys who would not live long. 
Now combine this with the fact that these are God's people. These are This is a good church-going family whose land becomes barren while the not-as-godly's land, the idol-worshiping country, has much. And it's the heat, the, the weight, the, the turning of lives with problems and circumstances like Naomi's and Ruth's that break them. And in this case, make them broke. I mean, they have not, they don't have much of security outside of their own lives. But not only are they broken by a fallen world, they are broken by faulty decisions. Now, what you cannot see from this passage is is that in this period of, of judge rule, they didn't have a king yet, no King David, yet they had these kind of semi-warlord um, slash spiritual leader kind of folks called judges. Now, judges was a period marked by people who had forgotten God, who lived in distance and disobedience him, and part of the result of that disobedience, Scripture tells us, is famine. That God would send a famine so that people would cry out to him once again. But apart from being some sort of invisible judgment of God on sin, there is famine most likely because of greed. You know, because of eating and harvesting too much. It's, it's like our own energy crisis here in America. We're driving too much. And so this huge gas crisis, I mean, everybody has to drive their car. You know, nobody's carpooling. And, and so they were instructed to let the land rest. Let it recover. Don't overwork it for greedy su- supply and demand. And God promised, barring this type of greed, that there would be enough food even in hard times. Now, another factor here may have been especially true in in these evil times of judging judges is there was probably a lack of sharing among God's people. There wasn't much mercy. So if you were poor, you know, you go, hey, I don't have any food tonight. Well, I'm too bad. I'm sorry. Can't help you. And yet this is the way God's people would hold together, that if there's someone poor, then there would be some kind of mercy, some kind of leftovers. And so in in this in this area and time when there was no where no one cared to help each other I mean Naomi and her husband and her kids probably said we better get out of town there's no hope for us here but the more direct faulty decision may have been made in their move to a country that was not God's promised land but they panicked, just like any of us would in a famine. Now they were not, you know, they were not yet at the point of complete lost hope. They had not yet mortgaged the land and the house. And I know this is a hard thing to say here because th- there would probably not have been much justice if they had mortgaged their home, or been much justice or mercy if they, if, if for those who, I mean, from those who had more. But they went to a place. That was dangerous to their relationship with God, dangerous to their family, with idol worship and idol worshiping wives. But they literally lost their lives in a place where they had no stake. You see, their land was in Israel. They were cash and carry renters in Moab. Sure, they ate big and they might have had some, some, some cash to spare, but they had no lasting family savings that they could be, that they could build, build upon since they're there in Moab. They could not or would not own anything long term. But add to it, now looking back from this, from, you know, the millennium here, you know, 2005 looking back, add to this sort of 
twisted justice thing. For widows like Naomi and Ruth, you could not own land. You couldn't stay clean to any securities unless another man came along and married you and he signed the deed. You know, so, you know, if you lose your house, if the credit went bad, you couldn't say, well, hey, my name's on the insurance policy, too, or my name's on a deed, too. It didn't work like that. And now Naomi and Ruth are left with the grunt, with the load, with the pain, with the sorrow, with the sin effects of faulty decisions, losing all they had in security and hope. And Naomi explains it in verse 20 this way. She says, don't call me Naomi when she returns home. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Get this. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Broken by a fallen world. Broken by faulty or poor decisions. These are the people. God loves. I don't have to go get deep philosophically or exegetically about this. In this world, what? Stuff happens. Life is bad and then you die. It's it's Murphy's Law. I mean, Scripture calls it a fallen world. And, and all of us have experienced life spilled milk. And for some of us, when that milk spills, it was the last glass we had. Did you see the faces of the Katrina victims? I mean, some of them, when they went back home, just looking at what was left, just kind of standing there, that, that look of broken, like, I don't know which way to go. I don't have any resources to get it started. I don't know where to begin. Here's all my life, my stuff. It's gone. Broken. I was watching the news this week, and there was a story about this house that burned down. Here in the Charlotte area. And and what happened was the house burned down in 20 minutes. Okay, and so the kids are getting home from school and the daughters beat the parents home from school. And and the the father was saying when he arrived, the school bus had dropped off the daughters. And when he came, they were just sitting on the sidewalk looking at what was left of this home just in tears. Broken. Alone. No hope. And for some of us here, our bad decisions and the unwise and sinful decisions of others have hurt us beyond seeable repair. For ambition or pleasure or pride, we have damaged ourselves and others and we have been damaged by all sorts of abuses. And many of us admit our brokenness and are fighting against it or faking that we're okay. Let me say this. We are all cracked. But we have some here who've taped it up. I'm going to say this. We have all somewhere kind of taped up our lives with with striving hard or or with cover up or we put a bandaid of success or or good grades or or popularity or we're self-medicating with with all the accepted vices. We're oversexed and overstimulated and, and overworked all because you and I fear the inevitable. We fear that it just may be true that we are broken. Afraid to accept the hurt and crack or incompetence and pain 
And the reason we're afraid to accept it is we believe it will leave us unloved, unwanted, destined for the garbage. And some of you have literally been crushed and and can't recover and deemed in the light of your brokenness in, in, in some area or some way in your life, you feel you're unfixable. That you're not worth much. That you're not destined for much. You stink. You know, you're you're dirty too badly. You are paying the penalty for some stupid mistakes and you're too far gone for someone to care enough to love. Don't you know, whether you're an openly broken person or a covered up broken person, that God loves and seeks to love broken people? People who, like those two girls, sit on the sidewalk looking at their lives or areas of their lives that are that are burned and ruined. And all they can do is wait for somebody and something to rescue them. Those who sit desperate and dependent on the comfort of others. For not only does God love God love broken people, God loves desperate people. Those desperate and dependent on outside help. Now let's understand this situation again brought out in verse, beginning at verse 8. Let's take a look at this. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-laws, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could be your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still some hope, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Ruth and Naomi, after the death of their husbands, they get filed among the desperates of society. They are more than ever dependent on circumstances and people outside of themselves. Now, unable to own land, they kind of have to trust that the trash cans will be filled enough for them to eat. That the Red Cross of their day will have some leftovers because as women, their names again are on no deeds and, and no savings accounts. They can't fix their situation. They can't do anything in and of themselves to make it any better. And so Naomi, Naomi advises Ruth and Orpah right Go back to your father's home. Go back where there is hope. All I have is some distant relatives whose scraps we may be able to gather from. This is no life. Sticking with me is no place for a woman of childbearing, marrying age. Go back. And Orpah goes back, but Ruth enters this desperate situation. She comes across as silly here. If we were in this day and we read this, we're like, girl, have you lost your mind? Go back and get you a man, get a husband, get a house, have a family. Don't follow this old widow to poverty. But Ruth says, no. I want to join you as a person desperate for mercy. Naomi leaves Moab 
because she hears that Israel is experiencing a boom. What does this give her hope of? Not that she can become rich or some type of entrepreneur or some type of player. No, she is hoping that the surplus will leave some leftovers. That if there's a lot of food there, that maybe her relatives will be merciful. She is looking to be dependent on some form of unmerited, liberated by someone else favor. Ruth and Naomi find themselves in a position that all of us here, Ruth and Naomi find themselves in a position that every single one of us here work most of our lives not to get into. A situation, a condition in which we can't buy or earn or deserve or work our way out of. Don't you know? I know it's true. We live to receive only as we have deserved or earned or have some stake to. We live to have enough savings so that as we have convinced ourselves, we will not be a burden on others. Man, give me a break. That, that isn't true. I mean, it, no, we save and work hard so that we won't have to stand in a place where we have a chance of not being loved or not being valued. See, we want to be in control. Because truly it is the only place you and I can assure ourselves that what we have cannot be taken or who we are not be at the disposal of someone else's giving it to us. I mean, it is the American individualistic's greatest fear, being dependent on some sort of mercy. It's the American dream's greatest nightmare. It's the competent person's greatest fight. Don't be desperate. Don't be dependent. And by all means, don't be wrong and dependent. Don't be in a place where mercy is ever an option. Be independent. Be sure of yourself. Have enough. Don't look to anybody else for help. And I want to be fair here. Truly, you may not know, have known someone who gives mercy along with worth and value, without taking your worth and value. But for some of us, independence has become a virtue so strong that we will sin to stay ahead of needing mercy or needing somebody's help or being desperate. We will even lie to others and steal and cheat and kill ourselves and our families. I mean, we, some of us will die before we ever have to know what it's like to be a person who's desperate and dependent on mercy. I think that's strange for Christians. If you're a Christian... And you're fighting just to be independent so you don't have to be in a position of mercy? That's strange. Have you considered who your God is? He's the one who describes himself as a God who loves to show mercy, who loves those who are desperate, who provides security for those who lack it. I mean, some of us may be in the wrong religion. How in the world did Christianity especially modern-day evangelical Christianity, become about a place for all the competent people. I have not met more independent, 
self-reliant, know nothing about mercy. As a matter of fact, mercy is a bad word for you, and it's a good word as long as you can be helping somebody else who needs it. But how can people be in God's church and cover up and pretend and lie and even cheat on their taxes so they don't have to ask for help? You're in the wrong religion. Man, you need to go see some of those, uh, you know, uh, positive thinking people. This is Christianity. It's a religion for people who need mercy. Those are the people God loves. People broken and desperate. You have not fully known the love of God if you have not been desperate and dependent in your brokenness or in your sin or in your struggles. If you have not come to the end of your rope, you know, when your moral bank account, when your ability to manage everything so well, when that account is empty, when you come to a place where you can't fix it, only there do you know what it is to be loved and comforted by God. And what's strange is some of you mercy ministry freaks, I mean, you just follow mercy ministry around. You know, I mean, I am so glad to have the people we have here at Christ Central. But some of us are like, yeah, man, it's good. it looks like it's going to be an inner city church, you know, where we get to do some mercy ministry. It amazes me that the ministry, mercy ministry freaks sometimes are the most competent people on the face of the earth. How can you be a mercy ministry person and you have yet to know what it is to receive mercy? There's no way you can give it right. There's no way you can love people who need mercy right until you recognize and you know the love of God and mercy. You know, the message we have not heard enough or believed is that it's safe to be needy. It's safe to be dependent and desperate. You know, that's what makes preaching in America so hard. Because y'all believe the dream more than you believe the truth. The gospel says it's safe to be needy and dependent and desperate in your inability to deal with your inner demons and outer pressures. Guess what? It's safe to cry for mercy. Why? Because contrary to all that makes you hate being needy of mercy and desperate and dependent, God loves those desperate for mercy. Now I've said much about the love of God for those broken and desperate. But in the story, as I look at it, there seems to be just that. Brokenness and desperation, but where's the love of God for these kind of people I keep talking about? Now, I want you to remember in the scripture intro what I said when I described Ruth as being a display of God's subtle but strong care and direction. In this first chapter, we see how God loves these women in in the simple details. I mean, it is clear that he loves people called by him through and in their brokenness and desperation. Sprinkled throughout this book are powerful words that are easy to miss. 
powerful words of God's care for people that are called by him and by his grace, even though the mention of his mention of his name comes in often negative situations, he remains a positive force in bringing and drawing Ruth and Naomi in particular to himself, to his grace and to his love. I mean, look at the references to him and what they mean to the whole of things. When she returns to Israel, people are like, is that Naomi? She's visibly different. I mean, maybe she left on a camel and she came back walking. I don't know. But most likely, I mean, have you ever seen the countenance and posture of somebody who's been broken and torn and hurt? They're looking at Naomi like, is that you, Naomi? What happened? And Naomi says, you know, look at me. Look, look with me at verse, at verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I'm going to tell you, Naomi does two things in expressing her brokenness. She couches it as being the work of the Almighty God, the El Shaddai. Now, which means the God who powerfully is in control of the lives of his people. But whether she means to or not, it is also a name meant to imply that he has dealt that that power, even in the breaking and allowing of desperate times to come upon his people to bring them back to a place of comfort. What is this almighty? I mean, he's the God that brought them out of Egypt, who called them out of slavery into the promised land. But what? Took them through the desert first. Why? So that when they entered the promised land, they would know and remember that what they are and who they were was because of the grace and mercy of God. And the same is true of Naomi, though in her broken condition, she can't feel it. Naomi is is not a a spiritual giant here at all. If she's she's broken, well, don't call me Naomi, which means lovely and pleasant. I'm not lovely and pleasant. The Lord has afflicted me. He's been put bitterness in my life. But even though if if she even though she doesn't know it or, or see it, God has called her in her brokenness, in her desperation, to show her his mercy, to allow her life to be comforted by him. Allow her to receive what he has. And we see that physical comfort promise when when she hears news that now there's food in Israel. And so she's called back to God in a place where he can show her mercy. That our life will be a reflection of God's love for people. Hear this. So that her life can be a reflection in truth of how God loves people who can't and don't deserve it, but he loves and cares for them anyway. And in her feeling, she calls herself Mara. But let me say this. While in the brokenness, this is what and how she sees herself and sees her God. But God, in very subtle but assuring ways, confirms 
that he has not seen, not stopped seeing her by the name she was originally given. See, Naomi's broken. So she says, I'm Mara. But what we see, now we're not going to get to all today, but what we see is that though she looks at her life and says, I'm broken, I'm desperate, I'm undeserving, the Lord has judged me, I'm nothing, I'm not worth nothing, I'm not valued. Let me just get the scraps off the ground. Though she feels like Mara, the Lord in his grace, in his mercy, in his love for his people still sees her as Naomi. In her condition, I'm bitter. I'm nothing. God says, she is still one who is pleasant and lovely to me. You know, I think about my boys. I mean, my boys never stop being loved by me. Yeah, they disappoint me. Yes, when I say no, they do it anyway. Right in front of me. You know, and, and Harrison has this telling, like I've told you this before, it's very manipulative so don't go all the way. Harrison is not like some perfect kid. Y'all know that, though. He'll say, like, if I have to discipline him or put him in timeout, Daddy, do you still love me? And I'm going to tell you, if I'm a little over the edge or I'm really just angry, I've had a frustrating day, when he comes back and says, Daddy, do you still love me? I'm like, yes, son. Some of you have been through some serious stuff. Some of you, you look great on the inside, but if we were to go to your house and see how you're living and how you're getting along with your husband and your wife and your kids, if we were to be allowed by God to go into your heart, I mean, it is a, it is a beaten and broken and desperate place, even though things look good on the outside. And don't you know God, when you look at him, and, and, if you're a person called by God, he looks at his children and says, you may consider yourself bitter and broken and unvalued. But I still love you. See, the circumstances in your life are his strong guiding hand leading you to know what would have escaped you if you were left believing that you were okay. If you were left believing you could heal yourself or give find comfort in other things or in foreign lands, as we put it. You would not have known the love of God for you. But now God has brought some of you back to a place where you can now get what he has for you. But only by his mercy and by his grace and not by your works and not by your deserving it and not by your morals. But by his mercy alone that God loves sinners, people broken and made desperate by sin and a sinful world. I want y'all to hang on just for a little longer. Let's go back to the beginning of the story. Look at verse 6 through 9 real quick with me. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would 
take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud. Now, the, the mercy, the, the mercy potential in Israel was not only part of the good, only part of the good news, but look what Naomi says. She says, would the Lord show kindness? That's Hesed. Would the Lord show you mercy? And then she says, give you rest. That's the same thing as grace. And would you, your, you would he give you a home with your husband? That's comforting care of God. She gives them the gospel unknowingly and that which she ministers that becomes a living lesson and truth back to her in the person of Ruth Ruth believes the potential of hesed and mercy and truth and grace for Naomi at this time more than Naomi does for herself confirming it with this statement in verse 16 don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you where you go I will go and where you stay I will stay your people will be my people and your God my God now Ruth carries more than a name that means friend she bears the grace filled friendship of God and her actions and desire to be with Naomi. She literally is a friend that sticks closer than the brother. She's either a God-given comfort and friend or she's a fool to hang out with someone who is obviously cursed or broke or bad news or bad luck. But she appeals to God's care for the people that he has and will call his, which is the message of the gospel, that he will not leave them or forsake them. That God will be with them wherever they go, through whatever they go through. And Ruth's statements about death, if you look at the language, is this, that not even death will separate me from the connection I have with you and with God and the care he has for you. For some of us, this should begin to sound like something we've heard before. In Romans, it says this. What then shall we say in response to this, which is all the problems we go for, go through? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he who that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God and Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we face death all day long and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered says this no and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, 
like Ruth to Naomi, God has given us Jesus to cling to us, to cling in our condition, to say, I'm not going to leave you. Are you crazy? I love you. To cling to us, expressing that God has not left us or left us comfortless or friendless. The gospel calls Jesus a friend of sinners. One who gets in and connects himself with the broken lives of people who can't and don't make perfect decisions. He confirms and comforts and clings to them with love when they can't comfort or love themselves. He says to each of us, where you go, I will go. Where you are, I am there. Wherever God takes you, I will be there to be your friend, a friend of sinners. And therefore, we can be free to be broken. Free to be desperate. Free to come to his grace. Free to come here to church and say, look, I don't have it all together, but all I know is there is one, his name is Jesus, and he clings to sinners, and he doesn't tell them no in their issues and their times of mercy. So I can come looking for, for a, a piece of bread or, or some kind of hope and, and I'm free to express my desperation to other people in his church and to God himself. I can come with tears and, and seeking forgiveness and mercy for whatever I have done or has been done to me. Because Jesus clings like Ruth to Naomi to people who are broken and desperate. He clings because desperate and broken people are the kind of people God loves and has loved. He urges you to believe that. Naomi comes back and she says, I left full and I returned empty. And I'm going to tell you the good news. With Jesus, everything in your life may seem empty. But with him, all things are full. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will cling to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father. Give us safety in Jesus. Believing he clings to us wherever we go. And he's been there with us wherever we've been. Help us to come before the throne of grace seeking mercy in our time of need. Knowing that we can go there. Because Jesus has been a friend to sinners and urges us and calls us to be there. Lord, I ask that you would free us from our competence. Free us from our American individualism. Help us to be dependent on each other and as we are, dependent on Jesus and you for mercy. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.